Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Three years in the fintech space has given Chintamani's co-founder, Uday U, the right to have a point of view. And I'm so pleased that he would share it with me on this episode of the Startups Roundtable. Hi, Tony Hackett is my name and I'm your host. So let's get to it and meet Uday. My background, uh, I have finished my engineering in uh, information technology and uh, I worked uh, as a product manager for a couple of startups prior to this. And while I was working, I realized that, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the month, there was not much money left with me, either in terms of my credit limit or in terms of, you know, my bank account. And uh, I thought that there has to be a way to solve this. Uh, And that's how, you know, the concept of Chintamani was born. Uh, Chintamani essentially is uh, an application that helps users be aware of their affordability by showing by showing them their budget balance before a purchase. So while analyzing why I couldn't save more money or have uh, you know a decent credit line, I realized that uh, it's not the lack of intention or motivation, but it's the lack of information at the time of purchase that compelled me to overspend. So if somebody told me, hey, you know, this uh, spend at McDonald's will make you go over budget by, you know, $10, then probably I wouldn't have. But but because I have this huge chunk of uh, money lying either in my bank account or as my credit limit, I don't care about it and I I just go ahead and spend. So that's the core crux of what we are trying to solve with Spinta Money is to help people be more proactive and not reactive in nature when it comes to their personal finance. I like the approach. You're, you're taking a, a run at this that says we'll help you be more effective, but we'll also help you think about your behaviours and maybe start to model better behaviours at a, a lifetime benefit. Is that a way to think about it? Yes, of course. And uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, you know this forms uh, a very core portion of behavioural economics if you see in the earlier days when cash was dominant, uh, people didn't have that much spending capacity that they do now. It's because when you go out of the house, you have to keep a certain amount of cash with you. And if you're spending using cash, you can only spend how much you have in your wallet. And that is proactive behavior because every time I'm looking at my wallet, I'm seeing, okay, there's like you know $15. I can only spend five. But now... When you are uh, at the same store, in the same situation, uh, you don't see that $15, but you see the $3,000 credit limit. And that, you know, um, makes you overspend, makes you not think about your budget, whether it's a daily budget, a weekly, monthly, or a category budget. And that essentially is what we are trying to bring back because uh, digital payments, uh, marketing, uh, you know, and merchants are all trying to make it very easy to pay you know, you have Afterpay, you have uh, uh, multiple credit cards, credit lines. So they're all trying to make you spend more faster 
But uh, what happens is in that process, you may tend to screw up your personal finance. So you have a lot of long-term benefit for this. And uh, it actually helps you build discipline, not just with your normal purchases, but even with your bigger purchases, bigger investments, as now your uh, thinking essentially shifts from, you know, uh, spending recklessly to giving it a thought. You've you've painted that very well. You, you've also made it clear that your first persona was you, <laughs> that your first customer profile was you. Can you can you talk me through when you started to mature that and to go beyond a market of one? <laughs> what did you think the customer, your ideal customer, looked like then? And also, if you could let me know how long ago that was, and how that's changed over the time, and what your ideal customer looks like now. So when I started, uh, it was uh, me working in a co-working space uh, in Mumbai, and uh, you know that's where I met my co-founder. Uh, even he used to work there and. Uh, one day we were just chatting about uh, problems and I said, hey, you know, I have this problem. I tried all budgeting applications, none of them work. And he came up to me and he said that, uh, you know, I do face a similar problem. And then we, when we started doing some market research, we found out that, you know, this is not just the two of us, but uh, more than 50 million Indians face this uh, issue. And, uh, you know, more market research led us to the fact that uh, this has started with, you know, a huge advent of consumerism in the market where uh, people are buying things based on, uh, you know, their wants and uh, not their needs. And, uh, and the easier it gets to spend money, the quicker it gets to spend money, the more often you see this phenomena. Uh, this phenomena of copying, this phenomena of, uh, you know, uh, marketing by companies, uh, you know, branding as such only helps to alleviate this problem and not solve it. So you will see youngsters, uh, college kids, uh, you know, spending $1,000 or $2,000 on Apple products where their income is not even $500 a month. So, you know, a financial planner or someone or an expert in personal finance would tell you that 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 is a very bad choice. But these decisions are not being taken by choice, but they're being taken by gut. And uh, this gut is influenced by, you know, peer pressure. It's influenced by marketing behavior and so on. So our target audience initially, we were thinking of, you know, uh, college students and uh, early graduates uh, who have this overspending issues. But as we dive more, and this was in uh, you know early 2017, but as we started making the product, as we you know interviewed more and more people, uh, we realized that it's not just that. Uh, even people with a substantial uh, income, middle level man- managers in firms or you know senior IT executives, uh, they too face the same problem. It's just that instead of overspending at a restaurant, these people are always spending on vacations. So the quantum of spending is different, but eventually, you know, the the uh, core of it is still the same. There is not much thought being given, and uh, that increases as more as your disposable in- income increases. So we have now our customer segment comprises of you know people between the age of eighteen 
to 35, 40 uh, who are uh, mid-income earners and who have multiple credit cards. These people are trying to find the best offers, but at the same time, they are very much inclined to buy, you know, mass consumerism uh, based items. You talk about the the joining of a, of a co-founder and there's the two of you, and you talked about data a lot. Could you maybe give a view behind the the product and the service and share some of your experiences and your considerations when it comes to making decisions and also how that has changed over time? So uh, our product uh, in India, at least, is a payments-based application where uh, people can create virtual buckets. So you can create a bucket for food, uh, you can create a bucket for entertainment, and uh, whenever you're on an app that allows you to buy food or you're on a website on your computer uh, booking movie tickets, a technology will enable you to see your budget balance before you do it. So I will see the moment I open, like say Zomato, uh, I will see that, hey, you have 5,000 rupees remaining in your food budget. And that is how my decision-making will be influenced because now I will look at restaurants, I will look at dishes, which will be within my budget. We also take in the existing payment methods that a person has and tell them which payment method is the best for that particular purchase. So if you have three credit cards, two debit cards, two digital wallets, you know, uh, one UPI payment method, we will analyze all of them and tell you that for this particular purchase, your Amex card will give you X points. And that is why it's the best thing possible. So that is how the product is, at least in India. We're planning to expand it uh, globally. Uh, and the basic premise will remain the same. Earlier, we were fixed to only one particular payment application, uh, which was UPI. So we had it integrated uh, with uh, a major bank in India. And uh, we are offering payments through UPI from within the app. But then we realized that uh, in order to fulfill you know, the global audience and not just the Indian oil, we need to go payment agnostic. So now it's irrespective of what uh, method you use. Uh, you can transact in the merchant app itself using whatever method. What we do is we add a layer of intelligence to it and just recommend you that, hey, uh, you use this particular payment method and you will save X money and you are within your budget. And this will lead you know, to some uh, coins that we give in the app, which you can redeem later at your favorite merchants. So that's how the entire product journey uh, has been from you know restricted to just one payment method to now being payment and country agnostic in the past two years. You've just made me think about something else here in relation to decisions that you make as a co-founder with your other co-founder. So how do you go about making those decisions? When do you rely on data and when do you allow yourself to rely on intuition or observation? So uh, in terms of decision making, uh, you know, there are certain aspects which are completely data driven. So, for example, uh, if we know that uh, uh, most of our users are not using this particular feature or they're not understanding the language and we have data that shows it, 
then that is a decision which you know will be taken based on just that the interesting part is uh, decisions that are more towards the behavior of the users uh, these are mostly taken on gut and uh, mixed with some sort of research not exactly data and then implemented and the reason being is uh, you know most of the times the end user or the end consumer they don't know what's best for them right and uh, they may start suggesting or they may uh, you know start asking us for features which are temporarily good but uh, you know they may give them instant gratification but it won't be helpful for them in the long run uh, what we do in such cases is uh, we go back to a, a proper research uh, we see articles uh, white papers around uh, behavioral economics around user psychology and try to make those decisions with uh, you know our own gut mixed with uh, some solid research foundations and uh, you know then make that impact on the product rather than just you know capitalizing off your data i love the honesty of the answer i didn't expect it to not be honest but what you what you're saying is at some point you've got to actually make a decision and do something <laughs> and pay attention and adjust on that is it is it fair to call it experimentation or is it a little bit different to that uh, it is uh, an experiment in the sense that we we do have hypotheses uh, just the nature of the experiment is different you can think of it of more like a thought experiment rather than a physical experiment that you are doing with you know say a facebook ads campaign or a survey uh, this one is more internal to you but it's still an experiment and it still can be proven wrong uh, in the short term or long term. Can you tell me about the, the KPIs that you look to now and also to talk about how they've changed over the last two years? So initially, we were looking at just uh, transactions and transaction volume. <clears throat> but uh, now we are uh, you know, starting to delve into the behavioral aspects of it. So uh, earlier we were thinking of ourselves as a budgeting company with, you know, a payments integration inside it. Uh, but now we have realized that, uh, you know, the core value lies in the intelligence. So we are now thinking in terms of how much money have we actually, uh, you know, saved off our users. So money saved per user uh, per month, per annum is a great metric uh, to track. Uh, it's also whether the uh, each user is within their budget or not. Uh, again, in various time frames, so monthly, quarterly, annually, and uh, how many offers are they redeeming? What categories they're spending? And uh, most insights, most data uh, is based on intelligence. How it can help us derive, uh, you know, very great insights versus you know, plain vanilla, transaction value, budget value, and so on. So that has changed. We've gone from like a more transactional approach to a more uh, intelligence-based approach. It is a challenge, I would expect, to make sure people understand the value they receive. And I'll, I'll rephrase that. As you were speaking, then I started to think about vitamins. <laughs> and if we take vitamins today and we're well in a year, would we actually attribute anything to the vitamins and, and we have a good diet? So do we attribute something to the, the good diet and the exercise? 
So the, the idea of being able to provide value in real time, that immediacy, help somebody make decisions, it would be important to keep reminding people that they actually got that benefit, that they got the, the good health from, from having taken vitamins on a regular basis. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that is why we, uh, you know, have a, uh, uh, you know, a loyalty program. So where every time a person is seeing the, uh, the budget or through our Chrome plugin or our application, and they are reconciling, they're saying that, yeah, I spent, uh, uh, you know, $5 on coffee. Uh, we give them Chintamani coins or loyalty points. And these points, when they accumulate, they can redeem it at their favorite merchants. So this acts as a hook for people uh, to come back and, uh, you know, use the app more. It also enables them to climb up uh, ladders. We also have, you know, motivational messaging happening. Uh, uh, we have a dedicated, uh, you know, financial news section where we keep uh, pushing them with news. And uh, what you said is correct, uh, especially in... Uh, Things like personal finance, where the effects are very long term, it is a challenge for startups like us to have people engaged throughout, and uh, that's that's uh, like you know the best possible uh, avenue for, for innovation to happen. Whereas you know you get a consumer uh, where you get a user engaged uh, completely and try to you know not only make them healthy today, but try to also make them healthy in the long run by offering such, you know, rewards or points or some activity that can, uh, you know, make them stick to us. Yeah, gotcha. I, I wonder about the uh, the trends that we see in, over the last, I don't know, two or three years also, probably since you started, there's been any number of announcements and notices and releases and what have you to do with fintech, open data, open banking. When you look at those those banner headlines, have you seen that they have been meaningful to you from a, a market creation point of view, or have they just been banners that have been press releases that haven't really driven the change that maybe people expected? So uh, I really appreciate the intent of uh, you know these uh, press releases or these banners. Uh, all these initiatives that are being taken like worldwide. Uh, however, what I still am waiting to see is actual impact. So uh, you have sandboxes that open up. You have like, uh, you know, lots of startups applying for it. You didn't get to do a beta or two. But uh, if you see the end consumer, right, they are still transacting the way they used to do a decade back. So still using uh, credit cards, majorly debit cards. We just have two players in the market. Uh, there has been some innovation on digital payments, but again, eventually the underlying infrastructure for those digital payments is the same, right? Uh, so there has to be a lot of uh, on-ground work which is remaining in terms of you know items like open banking or uh, you know similar, similar things. But uh, yeah, they're interesting. The, uh, when you read the papers, uh, when you uh, read their white paper, they surely sound interesting. But when you actually, you know, see their impact on ground, that is something which is debatable. Yes, I, I recall, and 
I'll be out by a period of time, but maybe 18 months ago, might have been two years ago. And Udo will come to speak about your experience with the accelerator programs and get your advice for other entrepreneurs in a moment. But there was a request from the, the Australian government, federal government, for organisations to put forward their point of view on open data. And I'll summarise and I'll generalise a little bit, but enormous an enormous number of the major organisations replied and they basically said, this is a really good idea, but we shouldn't rush into it. <laughs> so it made me think that <laughs> that entrepreneurs and, and innovators like you are there with just amazing, amazing ways for people to start to engage differently. And it's it's this almost a, a, a seesaw of interest, intent, interest, intent. And I, I wonder if uh, out of a number of changes that might come from what the world is going through right now, whether that might actually be a trigger for people to embrace the the change that you you have available i think uh, yeah you know uh, there will be a lot of impact on what's happening you know right now in the world uh, on policy making on uh, you know governments becoming more active in actually doing stuff uh, you know i also sympathize with them because uh, you know talking from uh, our side we most startups like a very lean uh, small companies and we can innovate quickly but when you actually deal with a large corporate or you deal with a large government organization uh, there is a substantial uh, need to follow procedures there's a substantial need to you know make sure things are in inside the purview of law and uh, and that is that is why i think uh, most projects get st- stalled or delayed uh, but I also agree that there needs to be some sort of mechanism, some sort of action. Sandboxes, for example, are uh, really effective. Uh, the Singapore government has uh, a sandbox. Uh, the governments in India are also uh, you know, planning to have some. And if we can create such innovative you know, uh, policies that can help startups uh, work faster, to make products faster, implement them faster, even if it is at a very low scale with very minimal risk involved. I think that should uh, help the ecosystem in general to mature and uh, take, you know, take small companies, take startups more seriously uh, compared to what it's, uh, you know, right now. And uh, I I totally agree that uh, there are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of uh, uh, governments that are really averse to change. But uh, you know what? Eventually, it has to catch up. So uh, if if there's India, if there's uh, Europe, if they're going ahead with something, and uh, if the if Canada or Australia doesn't catch up, it it's just a matter of time before they have to, or else they'll be left behind. So I think the government understands this uh, across the world, and uh, you know they are working towards it. Uh, but definitely, you know, the current situation will be a huge, huge uh, trigger warning for these people that uh, they have to do things faster. They have to innovate faster and, uh, you know, policy making has to change quite a bit. That's really well put. Could I ask you maybe to close out with some commentary and some guidance for any entrepreneurs, innovators thinking about 
taking that step from having had that good idea and to start their own startup, what would your your advice be and commentary be just from your own experience? But also, could you also speak to the startup accelerators and how you would suggest people think about working with them or, or applying to become a part of those? So it really, uh, I, I think depends uh, if a, uh, you know, a person wants to start up and they have like uh, no previous background or experience. Uh, it is you know, very imperative that uh, these people go out and network with existing entrepreneurs. Uh, they network with, uh, you know, uh, incubators and accelerators and try and get uh, in one of these because more than anything else, uh, what I have seen and I have experienced is that uh, the the more your idea goes out in the market, uh, the more you are known and uh, the more bigger your network is, the higher your chances of success. And that can be possible only when you are connected to a very strong network. So, you know, accelerators worldwide, whether it's a local city accelerator or, or it's a global accelerator, are really, really strong uh, focus points for entrepreneurial energy. And uh, first-time entrepreneurs especially need to tap into these points and, you know, make full use of them. Uh, if, if somebody is an experienced entrepreneur or they, you know, they have a financial backing, they have a modest understanding of what they do, then these may or may not be suitable for them. But uh, I would personally highly recommend them uh, to first-time entrepreneurs uh, because, uh, you know, the value that you get out of them is immense. You also get uh, credibility, which is really, really hard to, you know, uh, uh, generate in the startup ecosystem because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of pivots. Uh, for a startup to eventually find their product market fit, to eventually you know find their place in the market, but uh, if you have a support system like these, then it would be much much uh, you know easier to achieve the same thing. And uh, one more thing which you know uh, I feel these networks provide is the emotional guidance. So a founder is most of the time a very lonely person, and uh, they need to bounce off ideas, they need to bounce off problems that they are facing with other people. And these people should be like-minded people with some bit of experience uh, in the domain. And that is when these accelerators actually, uh, you know, help. They can be a sounding board to, you know, your problems. They can be a sounding board to your aspirations as well as, you know, just general feedback. So, yeah, my suggestion would be like, you know, just go for it if you have the chance. And, uh, you know, I don't think so there's anything to lose. Udo, that's fantastic advice. And uh, it can't be any more real than from the inside out. It's not an academic view or an academic answer to the question. So thank you for that. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. It's really been a delight. And I'd like to stay in touch and follow the fortunes of Chintamani, but thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Tony, for having me. Stay safe. Good luck. It was terrific to speak with you today, and I hope you found some points of interest. Feel free to get in touch. Maybe you would like to provide feedback or even suggest a future guest. 
But that's it for today. Thank you and bye for now.